during the reign of uh, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Christianity had become illegal and uh, persecution of Christians was sort of in the season. The penalty for following Jesus Christ was imprisonment and torture and oftentimes even death. One story came out of this particular setting. A young man by the name of Sanctus stood before the Roman governor on trial for the crime of Christianity. His life was literally hanging in the balance. He was repeatedly told to renounce his faith, the faith he possessed in Christ. And every time he was asked a question, however, no matter what it was, his answer was always the same, I am a Christian. No matter what the questions were about his family, his name, where he was from, he always gave the same unchanging answer, I am a Christian. According to Eusebius, the ancient church historian who recorded the events of this trial, this young man would not even tell his name or the nation or city to which he belonged, whether he was bond or free, but always answered the same, I am a Christian. When it finally became obvious that he would not renounce Christ, he was condemned to a public death in the amphitheater. On the day of his execution, he was fastened to a chair of burning hot iron, eventually attacked by wild animals. Eusebius recorded that throughout all of the ordeal, his accusers continued to try to break his resolve, but they heard nothing but what they heard from him throughout his trial, the words, I am a Christian. For Sanctus, his entire identity, his name, his citizenship, his social status was bound up in Jesus Christ. What defined him above and beyond everything else was that designation. I am a Christian. The term was not just a title. It was a way of thinking. It was a way of living. And for him... It was the reason he died. Frankly, I believe that more than ever, the church is in need of going back to the biblical drawing board and answering the question, what exactly does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live and act like a Christian? In our world today, the term Christian has become so broad, hasn't it? so elastic that it's sort of like one size fits all. It's a big umbrella. Today you can claim the title Christian and really not have anything to do with Jesus Christ. You uh, can be considered a Christian and deny uh, the deity of Christ. You can deny the virgin birth of Christ. You can deny the coming judgment of the world by Christ, a future kingdom with a king who's called Christ, a heaven for those who believe in Christ and a hell for those who don't. You can even be a Christian leader today and deny the need for Christ's atoning death on the cross. In fact, I'm watching as a majority of people who call themselves Christians believe that salvation no longer really has to even involve the cross of Christ. You can be a Christian today and basically have the attitude that the gospel is way too restrictive That the Bible is far too intolerant. One Pew Forum on Religious and and Public Life found that 
65% of the people polled said they believed the message of the Bible while at the same time, in claiming the title Christian, while at the same time saying they believed in the legitimacy of other religious tenets, which included everything from astrology to reincarnation. Every so often I'll, I'll read from what are normally considered Christian, even evangelical journals and magazines, which, by the way, I've suspended my subscriptions. I've let them run out. If I want to find them or read them, I, I know we, we, we keep them out for our students in the seminary. But I don't really want to pay for them. I'm amazed at how, how quickly the undertow of secular thought is sweeping the church out to a sea of moral uncertainty and doctrinal confusion. Many churches and denominations today are convinced that our commission as Christians has as much to do with saving the planet as it, as it does with saving people. In fact, more than ever, you'll be likely uh, considered un-Christian, not a very good Christian, if you don't buy into the politically correct propaganda of environmentalists and abortionists and gay activists. I was in the audience of a debate a few months ago at the National Religious Broadcasters in Nashville, just watching along with a couple thousand other people, a debate between a mainline denominational leader who was debating an evangelical leader on the biblical basis for homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Now, I had heard the arguments before, but what I left so amazed about was that this woman, this mainline denominational leader, was able to literally claim for her point of view and for those who followed her that they were the ones who were actually following the core values of Christianity. And the rest of us really weren't very good Christians. In other words, to call anything sinful anymore is unloving. That would mean you're not a good Christian. So the church needs to change her message if she ever hopes to be viewed by the world as Christian. Some time ago, a man in our congregation sent me an article from the News and Observer, so I knew it right up there with the Bible, the inspiration, and, and made sure I read it. Uh, the article interviewed, he'd send it to me tongue-in-cheek out of humor, but the article interviewed a pastor from a mainline denominational church in our city. And the pastor was asked, what would you say to someone who's thinking about giving your church a try? The pastor responded, well, they would be welcome regardless of who they are and regardless of their, note this, belief system. The pastor went on to add, we don't try to convert anybody. So the reporter asked him, well, what exactly is your church known for? For believing in nothing. Okay, that was my answer. But that, the, pastor, <laughs> the pastor said, we are known for having a positive spiritual message so that, here's the goal, we can feel better when we leave than when we came in. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you might behave. It's all about feeling good about yourself better about yourself when you leave than when you came. The guy in our church who sent me this article kind of wrote in the margin, tongue-in-cheek, hey, sometimes I don't feel better after your sermons. Could you work on that? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm trying to offend everybody so you won't feel so alone. That's my goal. <laughs> the truth is, you can believe just about anything you want to believe and feel pretty good about your position and opinion and yourself until you open up the Bible. 
And you take words for what they mean at face value. The Bible has a way of messing all that up. The Bible has a way of realigning everything. Because the the gospel of Christianity is not interested in relating to the world. The gospel is interested in saving people from the world. And at the same time, renewing the minds of believers who are constantly tainted by the world. The Bible creates a different culture. And the further down the road we go, it becomes such an old and antiquated and seemingly Victorian fossilized culture. I get advertisements in the mail. I don't know if I'm a target or what, but I get advertisements from churches that are you know, announcing either a startup or come to us. And they all say the same thing. I'll say the same thing. Come to our church because we're relevant. That's basically the message. We're relevant. You can be comfortable with us. The coffee's good. The the music is cool. The sermons are short. Don't comment on that particular point. But it's all dynamic, which is to be interpreted. We're not going to provoke anybody. Can I tell you something about myself? It was not intended to be funny. I need to be provoked. hope my wife's not listening to that, but I, I need to be provoked. I need to be provoked to live for somebody other than Stephen Davy. I need my mind renewed and transformed so that it doesn't so easily justify my sin. I need the Bible to act like a sword to cut through the facade of my intentions and my motives. I need the fellowship and accountability of other people who who run hard after Jesus Christ. We've got a, a pastor on our seminary board who pastors in our town. And every time I hear him pray, and I love to hear him pray, I am deeply smitten with the fact I do not know how to pray. I need that. I don't need to feel better about myself. I need to feel better about God who has claimed me and has redeemed me and wants to change me. I want you to take your New Testament and turn to a letter where in 25 sentences or less the Apostle Paul is going to confront everything about us. It's a short letter to a church leader named Titus. And in this letter, Paul is going to redefine everything. He's going to redefine spiritual maturity. He's going to redefine true leadership. He's going to redefine what it means to be a godly man and what it means to be a godly woman or young person. He's going to redefine the home. He's going to redefine sexual purity. He's going to redefine the Christian's testimony in the world. He's going to redefine the gospel. And do we ever need all of the above to be redefined and reclarified and restated? Now, by way of introduction, and that's pretty much all we're going to do. I know you're surprised to hear that, but Paul wrote three letters to men who were serving as teaching elders or pastor teachers. So we refer to these three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, as pastoral epistles, letters to pastors. 
they're not exclusively for the benefit of the pastor teacher, but for the congregations they led in. These two young men led many of them. These letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you're reading more than a letter. You're reading what would become and is now a book of the New Testament canon. In fact, as early as the third century, the letter to Titus was included in a list of apostolic letters, and uh, it was considered necessary, expedient for the life of the church. Most believe that Paul wrote this letter to Titus in between his letters to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Paul will refer, if you're familiar with his other letters to Timothy, to both Timothy and Titus as his sons in the faith. And you'll notice in verse 1 that the letter begins a little differently than the way we write letters or send emails today. It begins with the name of the writer, Paul. Now, we typically begin our letters with something different. In fact, we, we begin them with the one to whom we're writing, and we end with our signature. But not in these days. When you open the letter in these days, you knew immediately from whose pen this letter had been written. And it says simply, Paul. The name Paul is from the Latin polis, which means little or small. It's a Roman name. He was a Roman citizen. It was his Gentile name. His middle name, so to speak, was Saul. His Jewish parents had probably named him uh, proudly after the first king of Israel. But throughout his ministry, he would choose to be known not by the name of a former king, but by a common Gentile name uh, without any Jewish tradition. Maybe he wanted to be remembered that he was small. Since Paul referred to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11, verse 13, more than likely that's why he would choose the name of a Gentile, his, his, his common Roman name, and use that throughout his ministry. You need to know that by the time Paul writes this letter to Titus, he is an old man. He is a, a veteran missionary, pastor, theologian, church planter and teacher. In his wonderful new uh, publication entitled Insights, uh, Chuck Swindoll, the chancellor of Dallas Seminary, writes that when Paul sent this letter to Titus, Paul had seen just about everything. He wrote this, Paul had survived years of misunderstanding, controversy, slander, betrayal. Disciples had thrilled him and then failed him. Friends had come and gone. Thriving churches he'd planted, now flirted with apostasy. Congregations continually looked to him for guidance and then thanked him by rejecting his authority or questioning his integrity. In success, he was accused of boasting. In prison, he was dismissed as a failure. No one knew better than Paul how rewarding yet how frustrating ministry could be. He had suffered repeated disappointments with people, and the scars he had received over the years would be his gifts to Titus who would need these reminders as he struggled to stabilize churches on the unruly island of Crete. Well put. Frankly, there was no one better to prepare Titus for the challenges of ministry on the island of Crete 
than Paul. Cyrus was an island literally in the middle of the Mediterranean. It it was the midway point of connection to just about anywhere. If you were going to other continents, you you stopped and refilled, refueled, restocked at the island of, of Crete. During the days of Titus, Crete had a population of about a million people uh, filling up a hundred towns dotting the coastlines around that, that island. The citizens of Crete had a reputation that was known throughout the Western Empire as a, as a, as a devious people. They were known for their ability to lie, to be dishonest. In fact, if you said in Titus's day that someone was cretizing, what you meant was someone was lying. The expression that was common during this day, playing a Cretan with a Cretan, meant that you had tricked a trickster. You had outdeceived a deceiver. Can you imagine being living in an area that was so known for its dishonesty? that the very name of the island came to be known as a place filled with liars. And to say that someone is a Cretan meant he's a dishonest man or woman. Talk about a mission field. Talk about pressure for this young man named Titus. He's going to need inspired instruction. He's going to need words of wisdom, not only for himself, but the church that he is supposed to order and the churches on the island that he is supposed to lead. He's going to need words of wisdom from a wise and seasoned Christian. Don't you appreciate, I know I do, getting around someone who is older in the faith and just listening. Like the words of Hudson Taylor, who as an old missionary, he had pioneered the work in China in the last century, and he spoke to his staff and audience of believers on one occasion, and he said this. He said, it does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or if it presses you nearer to the heart of God. What great mentoring from a veteran missionary. Paul is going to come along to Titus and everyone who truly means it when they say, I am a Christian. And he's going to redefine what that means. Let me redefine life for you. And the first thing that Paul does is shocking to that world. He immediately convicts us and challenges us with how he refers to himself. Would you notice further in verse 1? Paul a bond servant of God. Now, in addition to the name Christian, the Bible calls believers by a number of different names. Branches, infants, children, friends, joint heirs, citizens, and on and on. Just a few of them. All of those titles sort of help us understand a little bit more about Christianity. They give nuance to our standing. However, the Bible uses one term more frequently than any other. It is this word, doulos, used here more than 40 times in the New Testament. The original Greek word, doulos, which should be translated slave. In fact, I encourage you to write in the margin of your 
uh, New Testament, above that word bondservant, the word slave. The overriding description of the Christian's relationship to Jesus Christ is a relationship between a master and a slave. The problem is, for the English reader, you're not going to read it that way because the English translation, going all the way back to the King James Version and even to the Geneva Bible, which predated it, softened the translation of doulos to bond, servant. In an effort to avoid the negative imagery and and obvious cruelty bound up in the slave trade throughout Europe and into the Americas, translators over the centuries chose to translate doulos a little more sensitively by translating it servant. It's interesting to know there are several Greek words that can be translated servant. Doulos is not one of them. Now, though the duties of a servant and a slave in the first century often overlapped and even into the 21st century. Slavery exists around the world, tragically so. Sometimes the duties of servants and slaves can can overlap. But there is a distinction in the New Testament and in the mind of Paul as he describes himself between the two. Here it is. Servants are hired. Slaves are owned. And there's a world of difference in that, isn't there? Servants have a, have a, a measure of personal rights and, and freedom in choosing who they work for and, and what they do. Slaves have no freedom, no rights. They were considered in the days of Titus and in our own English-speaking world for centuries without any personal rights. They were possessions rather than people or persons. See, what's lost on us When we read this phrase by Paul in Titus chapter 1 is that you don't immediately suck in your breath and shudder at the gravity of what Paul just said. Paul, a slave of God. It doesn't offend our sensitivities to read a bond servant. It doesn't confront our misconceptions of having some kind of autonomy from God. See, we would prefer to think that we have an option to obey Christ to serve him, to belong entirely to him. We don't quite get it when the Apostle Peter said that every Christian is a slave, a doulos, of God. We would would rather believe that we're servants, that we get to negotiate with him over the terms of his will, that we can, you know, protest a little with what he does to our bodies, uh, that we can, we can fuss with him about the inconveniences of his plan for our lives. That we can choose to be half-hearted about fulfilling his commands. That we can actually complain about the lateness of his blessings and the ill-timing of his burdens. You see, we think we've been hired by God. We haven't been hired by God. We are owned by God. And with that perspective, no wonder we complain, though, about overtime. Long hours of inconvenient service. Who's in charge of the benefit package around here? Doesn't seem to be working out for me. See, we've been trained to take our complaints up the ladder to the top of management if our job isn't as comfortable as as we'd like it to be. Have you forgotten? Paul wrote, "You, you no longer belong to yourself. 
You've been bought with a price. The imagery is you've been bought out of the slave market. You now belong to the one who bought you. You are owned by God. Charles Spurgeon, a British pastor in the 19th century, he, he taught his church the same issue I'm teaching you. And he said, and I quote him, where our authorized version softly puts in servant, it really is slave. The early saints delighted to count themselves as Christ's absolute property, bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. Paul even went so far as to rejoice that he had the marks of his master's brand in his flesh that we miss. Paul cried, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. For him, that was the end of the debate. He was the Lord's, and the marks of the whips and the rods and the stones were viewed as the branding of Paul's body as the property of Jesus, his Lord. Spurgeon concluded, if the saints of old gloried in this, I pray you and I will do the same. See, Paul was redefining our freedom, our sense of autonomy, the right we might think we have, and we might even come to church and think that it's all about me. Paul will say, effectively, he is a slave of the Creator. And by the way, that, that brings about experiencing true freedom. The way of freedom is slavery to God. In fact, another author from the 1800s wrote it this way, slavery to God is the only liberty in life. Catch this sentence. Liberty, he wrote, does not mean doing as you like. It means liking what you ought and doing that. Liberty does not mean doing as you like. It means liking what you ought. Such slavery to Christ is the only nobility. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, it's true that you find a Christian who is arguing with God over the terms of his will, and you find a Christian bound up in frustration and unhappiness. But find a man or a woman or a young person who stands and says, I am a Christian, and I understand by that I am wholly owned as a slave to my master, God, and you find someone liberated to serve with contagious joy. Like the young lady at a Bible conference held on her campus, she stood up and before her peers, she held up a sheet of paper and she explained, this sheet of paper represents my life dedicated to Jesus Christ, and you can see it's blank. It's been left for him to fill in as he pleases, but I want you to know I've already signed my name at the bottom of the page. I am a Christian. What does that mean? I am owned by Christ. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 1, not only that he is a slave of God, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. Slavery referred to his obligation Apostleship referred to as occupation. The word apostle is a compound word, two words, when combined means to be sent forth. You can loosely translate it messenger, ambassador. Although even those terms need to be defined for us a little better. 
The idea of being an ambassador of Christ pictures in our minds our own Western world's idea of having someone on the payroll of the government going and making sure things are smooth between countries. That wasn't the first century view of an ambassador. An ambassador was someone who came from the side of the victorious king to a vanquished people and delivered to them their terms of surrender, the king's terms of surrender. When he uses the word apostle, in fact, he'll call Timothy and Titus apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul will use it then loosely as a messenger, an envoy, an ambassador, a missionary, so to speak, could be used in this, this uh, words, um, definition. But Paul uses it here in Titus 1 in that official narrow sense. He's referring to a few select men who speak for God. Men who are personally commissioned by the resurrected Lord who then set the foundation for the church. That foundation was set 1900 years ago. We're not building on we're not we're not building a foundation anymore. There are no apostles today. We're building upon the foundation today. And the reason that Paul throws in this idea of apostolic authority is that Titus is going to need to speak with apostolic backing and authority. He's going to appoint elders, perhaps even deacons. He's going to instruct the church on how to live and how to conduct themselves. And Titus is going to be challenged. He's going into churches that have been established and he's going to say, no, you do it this way. Not that way. He's going to go into a church that already has its leadership sort of defined. And he's going to say, no, uh, you and you and you are going to be elders. But you guys that are already in charge aren't. Oh, my. Can you imagine someone coming to Colonial today from the outside? And after six weeks saying, all right, here are my appointments for elders and deacons. That's exactly what Titus is going to do. And people are going to ask him, you know, who, who, who asked you? I don't, I don't remember inviting you here uh, to our church. We were getting along delightfully before you showed up. I mean, do you think you can just waltz onto our island and, and, and into our churches and decide who the officers and the leaders are going to be? Don't you know you don't change the color of the carpet or the, you know, the look of the, 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 the bulletin or whatever until you've been here for 10 years? Who are you again? My name is Titus. Oh, that's a Latin name. Are you a Jew? No, I'm a Gentile. Oh, but when you converted to Jesus Christ, you were circumcised, weren't you? No, I never was. Were you trained by uh, uh, all of the apostles in, in, uh, in Jerusalem? No, uh, no. Did you ever meet Christ personally? No, never saw him. So you're not technically an apostle sent from Christ, uh, That's right. Listen, son. The pillars of this church were saved years ago at Pentecost when we traveled there to hear Peter preached. Who sent you here anyway? Well, let me show you. I have a letter from Paul the Apostle. Yeah, we know him, but does he know you? Well, let me me show you. In fact, if you'll look down at verse 4, he writes to Titus, that's me, My true child in the common faith. 
What he's saying here is that Titus was led to faith by Paul himself. Titus was discipled by Paul himself. Titus has the same faith as his own. They share a common uh, bond, a common Lord, a common faith. Paul is elevating Titus as a believer, saying, look, look, we're, we're, we're in this together. As it relates to what he has to say to you, he has my authority, which would have been incredibly remarkable, by the way, for these pillars of the church to read here that Paul, a former Pharisee, an impeccable Hebrew, a trained rabbi, one deeply devoted in his former life to Jewish tradition, is now calling an uncircumcised Gentile convert young man my Son in the faith. My son. We're in the family together. Yeah, Titus and I are related together. We got in the same way, this common faith in Jesus Christ. Titus probably paused there for a moment to just let it sink in before he probably said, now look, if you look down here at the next verse, verse 5, you might read there, for this reason I, Paul, left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I direct you. Oh. Case closed. By the way, Titus was perfect for the job. We don't know much about this man, one of the most overlooked uh, figures in church history. Only 11 verses in the entire New Testament even refer to him. But we do know that earlier Paul had sent Titus Titus, to Corinth, to straighten out that church. Can you imagine that assignment? Titus, you got some time on your hands? I do. Go to Corinth and straighten them out. It's a divided, divisive, immoral, compromising assembly. And by the way, he did such an excellent job. He succeeded in bringing about unity, and he also strengthened the reputation of Paul in their eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Titus was then sent on another assignment, a tough assignment. He was sent to a province known as Illyricum, or Dalmatia, a difficult culture. According to the Roman historian Polybius, the Illyrians were common enemies of everyone. They did not get along with anybody. Another contemporary of Titus, a man by the name of Strabo, wrote that the people of Illyricum were wild and given to their primary occupation as pirates. Hey, Titus, I got a new church for you. Go, go straighten it out. Oh, who's there? A bunch of pirates. <laughs> okay. And off he went. All of it was wonderful preparation for the island of Crete. Titus would confront disorderly churches with several years of history Anybody knows you don't just waltz into a church and change anything. You don't change a bulletin, color of the carpet, music, nothing. You leave it alone. <laughs> when I read the job that Titus was supposed to perform, choosing elders, I couldn't imagine the confrontation. I couldn't imagine the hurt feelings. I couldn't imagine the bruised egos. You just don't do that. I can still remember how I felt the first time I ever decided to bring about a little change in a ministry. 
I was a college senior. I had accepted one semester in an assistant role at a church on one of the mountains in Tennessee, about an hour away from the Bible college where I was attending, about 45 miles west, 45 minutes west. The pastor was a seminary student. He was a few years older than me and married. He'd been serving for about four, five, six months. He preached on Sunday morning to about 30 people, little bitty clapboard church on that mountain. And I would come on Wednesday night. I'd drive a borrowed car and go up there and preach to about 10 people on Wednesday night. The, oh, the, the name of the mountain was Jump Off Mountain. <laughs> I don't know the history behind that, but I didn't want to know. I was a little afraid. The name of the church creatively was Jump Off Baptist Church. <laughs> that should have been my first sign. <laughs> Things weren't going to go well. The church looked and smelled old. It seated about 75 people. Little one-step platform, the pulpit. Behind the pulpit, you'd bump your knee with one step in, two rows for a choir that I never heard saying they didn't have one. Then on that back wall, I was struck the first time I'd arrived with this banner stretched about six feet across, a banner with some inspirational phrase on it. It was faded and a text of Scripture completely worn out. The pages had curled and crinkled. They were yellowed, brown with age. It was really pitiful. You couldn't avoid it whenever you came into the chapel. So I talked with a seminary student who was a pastor about an idea. I, I, I decided that, hey, what we need to do is let's create a new logo and a, and, a, and, a, and a brand new inspirational phrase. And it was time to give this church some fresh momentum and vision. And I was so excited about it. Pretty sure everybody else would be too. I contacted an artist at school and we began working on it. The next Sunday morning I was filled with excitement. I had that, that new banner rolled up underneath my arm. Came to church, got there a little early. I would lead the music, and the other pastor would preach. And so I was there getting things prepared. And there was one man in the church that had kind of run everything. He'd been there for 25 years. His wife played the piano. He taught the only adult uh, Sunday school class in the church. Uh, but at any rate, I, I beat everybody there that morning. Went in, and I, 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 as carefully as I could, took down that old banner. It had been cracked at different places, and I, as carefully as I could, took it down and rolled it up, and it... it crackled and broke as I did it, set it aside, and I began to put up that brand new banner, fresh vision, fresh momentum, new church, new life, new ministry, all that. I tacked in about three of those tacks with a hammer, heard the door open, heard footsteps that stopped, and then I heard this man, this leader, bellow, what are you doing? And I kind of stopped halfway on my third tack. And I said, well, I'm putting up a new banner. And I could tell this wasn't going to go over well. And he said to me, he was livid, his face red. He pointed his finger at me and he said, I want you to know that banner has been up there for 22 years. And I was thinking, is that a good thing or a bad thing? He turned on his heel and he stomped out of that church and slammed the door of the Seminary pastor who came a few minutes later had to go out and try to settle him down so he'd teach that class. And I'll never forget, with one knee on one of those pews, taking that new banner down, unrolling that old one, and putting it back up. 
When I read Paul asking Titus to go into an established church and decide which men will be elders, I I imagine going to jump off Baptist church (laughs) and saying to that man, I've been here three weeks, two men are going to be elders, and you're not one of them. And then running. Paul, you got any encouragement for a brave young man like Titus? Or for us today, a congregation of people committed to Christ who need a redefinition of what it means when you stand up and out there and say, I am a Christian. That that means I'm a slave of God and I'm sent with a message that to many people is going to sound like the terms of surrender and they're not going to like that very much. So can you encourage us? Paul writes at the end of verse 4, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Those aren't just words thrown in there to make a nice ending to his introduction. Yeah, let's throw a little grace and peace and Get to verse 5 where it matters. No. No, Titus, listen. You, you have grace to strengthen you. Grace to pray. Grace to forgive. Grace to serve. Grace to endure. Grace to persevere. You have peace. Oh, <laughs> You're not going to feel much peace, but you've got it. Peace for reassurance. Peace in the midst of struggles. Peace when everything else is chaotic. Why? This is all sourced out of God the Father. Titus, I'm your father in that I led you to faith in Christ, but you have a perfect father. It's God. And you have this peace as well. I think that the letter of Paul is a letter from one slave to another. I think of an old, battle-scarred slave writing to a younger slave to all of us. He tells him with the wisdom of both truth and experience in his own life, Titus, when you take your stand and you say, I'm a Christian... When you effectively say, I am a slave of God, I'm one of, I'm one of God's messenger boys. Don't forget to draw from the divine reservoir of grace and peace. And for you today, there's just enough. Just enough. And it's backed up by this limitless supply of God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Father, we thank you for words from a veteran, a man who who never just threw around pious platitudes, a man whose body bore scars, his heart as well, one well-equipped, to give Titus his authority, 
which came from you on how the church should live and act, how life is to be redefined. Ultimately, in this process, how you define a true Christian. If you're one of those, my friend, would you ask the Lord to put an exclamation point in your heart at this text? Lord, make me your slave. Make me more aware than ever that I've been bought by you. I'm not a servant who determines hours and wages. I'm your slave. If you don't know what it means to be bought with the price, which is, we're told by the apostles, the blood of Christ, we don't want you to go long without a full answer. Maybe you know enough of, of the gospel that for you, it's, it's, you're, you're fully aware, but you don't want to surrender. Can I join my voices with those in this audience today in telling you that in surrendering, there is satisfaction. In slavery to God, there is freedom in life.